0: American History TV, only on C-SPAN 3. Next, on Lectures in History, University of Alabama professor Joshua Rothman teaches a class on abolition and pro-slavery movements in the early 1800s. He highlights the way that both sides used printing presses and mailing literature to spread their ideas. His class is about 50 minutes. So uh, today we're going to talk about anti-slavery, the emergence of a new kind of anti-slavery, and the reaction to that new kind of anti-slavery. We sort of haven't looked at opposition to slavery in a while, but in the generation or two after the ratification of the Constitution, it was not unusual for both Northerners and Southerners to talk about the morality of slavery. Now, Before the 1830s or so, there were relatively few white Americans who believed that enslaved people ought to be immediately freed, given citizenship rights. But there were many who felt that white people and black people would both be better off if slavery gradually ended and if the two races sort of pursued their destinies separately. And so in 1817, you start to see kind of the manifestation of this idea in a movement, right? That year, a group of prominent ministers and politicians, people who wanted to end slavery, separate the races, they founded an organization called the American Colonization Society. Now, their idea was to take free black people living in the United States and resettle them in West Africa. At the same time, the society would encourage slaveholders in the United States to emancipate their slaves, and those people would then also be sent to Africa, along with black missionaries who would bring Christianity to Africans. Now, this is a really popular idea in its early years, colonization. It's particularly popular among white people, and it is so popular that in 1822... Congress actually appropriates money to help the society found a colony in Africa. This becomes the American colony of Liberia. This would be the place where enslaved people from the United States would go. And there were supporters of this idea of colonization right up to the Civil War. But in practical terms, the movement never really gets very far. Um, For one thing, African Americans did not have a whole lot of interest in it. They do not want to leave their homes to go someplace that they had never been. Free black people in the North condemned colonization. What they are interested in is not leaving the United States. What they're interested in is ending slavery altogether. But another reason colonization fails as a movement is that there simply aren't that many slaveholders who were willing to emancipate their slaves. The more the cotton economy boomed, the more enslaved people were worth, the less interested slaveholders were in freeing them. And so all told, even as this movement goes on, it remains popular, the numbers of people who actually go to Liberia are relatively small. But one thing that does stand out about colonization is that even though it's clear it's not really going to work, there were both white Northerners and white Southerners involved in the movement. And through the end of the 1820s or so, there was at least some openness to talking about the morality of slavery, the future of slavery in the South. This was particularly true in places like Maryland and Virginia, where slavery wasn't as deeply entrenched as it had been in earlier decades. And it was particularly true among evangelical Christians, right? We talked about the sort of Second Great Awakening religious doctrine that, at least in theory, called for equality of all people before God. Many evangelical ministers, even in the South, early in the 19th century, were opposed to slavery Now, I want to be clear. Most white Southerners did defend slavery. But they very rarely argued that slavery was an unambiguously good thing. And they almost never said it was perfect. Instead, the kind of defense of slavery that you might see from Southerners early in the 19th century was that they had inherited slavery. It came down from generations before them. Sometimes they might argue that their economy made the continuation of slavery into a necessary evil. But most white people agreed that the system could use some internal reforms. There were many people who felt that in time some kind of alternative might be found to slavery altogether. In fact, early in 1832, in the aftermath of the Southampton uprising in Virginia... The state legislature in Virginia actually had an open debate about whether or not to put a gradual emancipation plan in place. Move the whole state toward a free labor economy instead. But whatever kind of openness you might have seen in the South in the 1810s, the 1820s, by the middle of the 1830s, even entertaining those kinds of ideas out loud, was dangerous. The Virginia legislature obviously rejected that gradual emancipation plan, and no southern state ever again considered emancipation before the Civil War. There is a dramatic shift that happens in the South between the 1820s and the 1830s. And essentially what happens is that instead of thinking about the future of slavery, leading white Southerners instead came to the conclusion that without slavery, they had no future. And the reason this happens, why there's such this uh, uh, sort of rapid about face, is largely due to the emergence of an organized and vocal abolitionist movement in the North. Now, abolitionism, right, as a reform movement, like the ones we talked about last time, abolitionism is the crusade to end slavery. And as a movement, it does not have nearly as many adherents and followers as some of the movements we talked about last week, right? Not nearly as many as temperance, for example. But abolitionism is the most significant reform movement from this era. It has the biggest impact on American history, And underlying abolitionism are a lot of the same kinds of ideas and impulses that underlay some of the other reform movements. So many abolitionists, for example, were evangelical Christians. They believed that slavery was sinful. They believed it was an unjust restraint that prevented African Americans from reaching their full potential as human beings. And by doing that, By keeping them from living up to that potential, the United States perpetuated a social evil. And it was one that did not only hurt black Americans. It hurt the whole country. Slavery, they believed, impaired national potential for greatness and ultimately the nation's potential for real spiritual redemption. Now free black people, as you might imagine, in the North, had been fighting for an end to slavery ever since there was slavery. They'd been fighting for abolition for years, decades, before white Americans began to respond. By 1830, there were already more than 50 black abolition societies, and as time went on, those abolition societies only became more forceful. They became more hostile to, the, uh, um, to ideas about gradual emancipation, right? This had been sort of the characteristic move of anti-slavery since the age of the American Revolution, right? gradual emancipation. But instead, as the reformed spirit starts to increase and gain momentum, right, its insistence on moral perfection black Americans began to demand more aggressively that slavery was a sin, that slavery was un-American, that slavery had to end, and that they were entitled to their rights as citizens of the United States. So there's a rise of a more militant kind of abolitionism. And one sign of that uh, uh, sort of new phase of black abolition was the publication of a pamphlet by a black man named David Walker. Uh, David Walker was born free in North Carolina, and he eventually moves to Boston, where he runs a used clothing store. Right, it's mostly catering to black sailors. Right, they would come off the boat, they're wearing these nasty old clothes. All they want to do is get some, some clothes that are different and get rid of the ones they're wearing. Well, Walker not only ran a clothing store, he also gets involved in anti-slavery societies. He gets involved with newspapers. And in 1829, he publishes the Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World. Now, this document is a scathing indictment of slavery, of racism, and it was a warning to white Americans, a warning that slavery was a sin against God, it called on black Americans to mobilize for abolition. And it frankly called for enslaved people to rise up in rebellion if they were not given the freedom that they deserved. Now, this was a pretty alarming thing for slaveholders to hear. right? This is a, a, a black man encouraging violent rebellion by enslaved people. And it became even more alarming when some of the sailors who patronized David Walker's store started sort of showing up in southern port cities with copies of this pamphlet. And as a consequence of that alarm, a price was put on David Walker's head by a number of southern states. He's found dead less than a year after the appeal was published. And actually, was looking at this last night. There's some modern scholarship that suggests he probably died of tuberculosis, but it's not surprising that many people believed for years afterward that David Walker had been murdered. But regardless of how he died, the militancy that he expressed, that didn't die. A year later, after his death in 1831, a white man an evangelical Christian named William Lloyd Garrison takes it upon himself to start spreading this new kind of aggressive abolitionism. And he gives it a permanent voice. He starts publishing a newspaper entitled The Liberator. And The Liberator's goal was pretty straightforward. It demanded an immediate, unconditional and to slavery. The front page of the very first issue, Garrison's first editorial, made it perfectly clear where he stood. He wrote, I will be as harsh as truth and as uncompromising as justice. On this subject, meaning slavery, I do not wish to think, speak, or write with moderation. I'm earnest. I will not equivocate. I will not excuse. I will not retreat a single inch. And I will be heard. Now, particularly among evangelicals, the North proved uh, receptive ground for the anti-slavery cause, right? It's building on this long-standing foundation that's been laid by free black people. So in Philadelphia, in 1833, Garrison Along with about 60 other people, both white and black, they founded an organization for the movement. Right, this is how these movements work: the American Anti-Slavery Society. By 1835, so two years later, there were more than 200 anti-slavery societies in the North. By the end of the 1830s. The American Anti-Slavery Society had over 1,000 local chapters. More than a quarter of a million members. Now, the abolitionist movement holds within it a lot of different kinds of positions. Not all abolitionists hold the same positions on slavery. Not all of them have the same attitudes towards slaveholders. What the American Anti-Slavery Society is able to do, at least for a while, is it's able to bring together a wide range of people. People who cross lines of, of race, of class, of gender, of political persuasion. There's a broad framework, right? They all desire the end of slavery. But within that broad framework, different people had different visions, How do you go about pursuing that goal? So, for example, some people considered themselves abolitionists, but really what they still were dedicated to was the idea of colonization. That's sort of the most conservative kind of abolition there was. Other people believed that the most practical strategy remained gradual emancipation. They didn't think it was possible for it to happen all at once. But the most radical people, known as immediatists, were people like Garrison. People who saw no reason to wait, and they saw no grounds for compromise. Garrison, in fact, only becomes more radical as time went on. He starts attacking not only slavery, he attacks the government that condoned slavery. Slavery. Most famously, in the 1840s, he burned a copy of the Constitution, referring to it as a covenant with death and an agreement with hell, because it protected slavery. Now, when it comes to race, abolitionists also have a range of perspectives. There are some abolitionists, the most radical abolitionists, people like Garrison, again, they were racial egalitarians. These were people who believed not only in freedom for black people, they also believed in equality, giving free black people full social and political rights. Most white abolitionists don't believe in that. Most white abolitionists believe in freedom but they do not necessarily believe in equality. And this is sort of a a hard thing for us to get our minds around. You could be anti-slavery and still pretty racist. Moving beyond race to things like strategy, there were some people who really felt the way to do this was to take political action. But there were other people who wanted to steer clear of politics altogether because they thought that getting involved with politics would sort of muddy up the morals of the movement. And so there's all these tensions within the movement, right? Tensions over goals, tensions over tactics, tensions over beliefs and ideology. There were arguments about the role of women in the movement. And ultimately by the 1840s, the abolitionist movement splits. It divides into a number of different factions. And so by the time you get to the civil war, the term abolitionist It doesn't really mean any one thing, right? There's not any single abolitionist movement. Instead, what that term really meant was kind of a broad, decentralized spectrum of individuals. But sticking to the 1830s, which is sort of where I'm going to spend most of our energy, right? That's when the movement is growing at its fastest, and it's when it's at its most unified and aggressive. And as the movement is growing, abolitionists are relying mostly on three big strategies for building the cause. One strategy was sending speakers out on the lecture circuit. And particularly compelling abolitionist speakers were dozens of formerly enslaved people. Men like Frederick Douglass and Henry Box Brown... Women like Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman. These are people who had direct experience with slavery. They knew personally, intimately, what its evils were and what that felt like. And by telling what their lives under slavery had been like, they brought a kind of authenticity, a kind of moral energy to their lectures that people like Garrison couldn't possibly offer. Garrison only knew slavery from a distance. And he's white. He couldn't speak to slavery like Frederick Douglass could. A second weapon of the abolitionists, and arguably their most important, was literature. Abolitionists flood the streets and the mails with a massive outpouring of pamphlets, leaflets, newspapers, sermons, broadsides. In 1835 alone, abolitionists sent more than one million pieces of mail through the postal system. And what's in this abolitionist literature are calls for slaveholders to repent, to free their slaves... It's calling on non slaveholders to join the abolitionist movement. And the literature is filled with condemnations of slavery itself as immoral, as unjust. It described plantations as places where the most brutal kinds of atrocities happened on a regular basis. And it's a very careful kind of message, right? Abolitionists understood that Americans were coming to value things like the domestic sphere, family life. These things were absolutely critical for individual happiness and for national stability. And so abolitionists particularly stressed how slave families were torn apart by the institution of slavery. They stressed how enslaved women were subject to systemic rape and sexual abuse. These were kinds of angles that bore special resonance for middle-class white women. These are people who are drawn to abolition. It's middle-class white women who serve as one of the movement's really core strengths of support and manpower. Now, for abolitionists who preferred more direct tactics, right? Speakers was one thing. Political literature is another thing. You're trying to persuade people to your cause. For abolitionists who wanted something more direct, the movement's third major strategy was a turn to politics, political action. So some anti-slavery activists sent petitions to Congress by the hundreds, the thousands, sometimes signed by as many as tens of thousands of people. They show up in these giant rolls of paper in Washington. Still other people took political action to the next level. They start calling for political parties that would be dedicated specifically to the goal of ending slavery. And the very first one of these is founded in 1839, and it was known as the Liberty Party. Now, when you add all this up, you have a movement of people who are very loud, they're very outspoken, they're very motivated, but there are not that many of them. Abolitionists, for all of its growth, right, it remains a, abolitionists remain a relatively small minority of the northern population. And that was because most white northerners were not interested in racial equality. They were not interested in setting enslaved people free. Most white northerners instead felt like abolitionists were crazy people, religious fanatics, dangerous radicals, self-righteous people, annoying people, people who were much more concerned about sort of the state of their own souls than they were about the stability of the nation. And the truth is, if we're being really honest, abolitionists were pretty out there for white people in the 1820s, 30s, 40s. But whatever we might want to call fanaticism that they brought to their cause, um, they do have one distinct advantage with hindsight, right? And that distinct advantage was they're right. But most Americans didn't feel that way at the time. And so throughout the North, the homes and the businesses of abolitionists came under attack. People who were known to be supporters of the abolitionist movement sometimes lost their jobs. Sometimes they got evicted from homes that they rented. Abolitionist meetings and speakers were routinely interrupted by mobs. Speakers were on the receiving end of eggs and rocks And clubs? In 1835, William Lloyd Garrison himself was dragged through the streets of Boston by a mob. He almost certainly would have been lynched. But the police got to him, and they put him in jail for his own protection. But of course, when this kind of thing happens, it's just a matter of time until somebody gets killed. And in 1837, the abolitionist movement got its first martyr. His name was Elijah Lovejoy. Lovejoy was a minister. He was the editor of an abolition newspaper in the town of Alton, Illinois, which is right across the Mississippi from St. Louis. On three different occasions, mobs attacked Lovejoy's house. They destroyed his printing press, and he just kept ordering printing presses. And when the fourth press arrived, he armed himself. He decided to guard the warehouse where the newspaper was published. And mobs didn't want to go into that warehouse, because mobs are sort of fundamentally cowardly. So they set the warehouse on fire instead. They shot Lovejoy as he fled the building, They destroyed the printing press again, and they dragged his body through the streets. This was bad, right? Assaults against abolitionism and abolitionists. And yet, what those people faced in the North was almost nothing compared to what they faced in the South. White Southerners were outraged, By the rapid growth of abolitionism. The fact that abolitionists seemed to single them out, morally condemn them for perpetuating an institution that was legal and that was constitutional. White Southerners argued that abolitionists challenged their honor and their integrity as American citizens. They argued that abolitionists threatened and endangered their lives by sending materials through the mail that could spark a slave rebellion? Anti-slavery sentiment was one thing when it came from inside the South. It was one thing when people were talking about the possibility of colonization. But this was different. This was a growing movement, aggressive, biracial, coming from outside of the South. That wasn't acceptable. And so within the South, anti-slavery sentiment effectively disappeared by the middle of the 1830s. If you were a minister who was opposed to slavery, you either changed your tune or you left your pulpit. By the middle of the 1840s, both baptism and Methodism split into northern and southern wings over the issue of slavery. This is why there are Southern Baptists, Southern Methodists. Mobs attacked editors who kept printing articles that were critical of slavery. They destroyed printing presses of anti-slavery newspapers. In 1831, the Georgia legislature offered a bounty for William Lloyd Garrison's arrest In South Carolina, there was a reward of $1,500 offered if anyone was caught with copies of The Liberator. In Charleston, in July 1835, citizens simply raided the post office. They took all the abolitionist literature that had been sent to the South out of the post office, they piled it up in the street, and they set it on fire. By the 1840s, just being caught in possession of abolitionist literature could put you in pretty serious physical danger in most parts of the South. But Southern power in defense of slavery never really just stayed in the South. It went federal. And at the federal level, in 1836... Southern congressmen secured passage of what was known as the gag rule. And what the gag rule did was all of those abolitionist petitions that were coming into Congress, the gag rule provided that they would not be read. Never. They would not be entered on the floor of Congress. They would simply be tabled and put in a closet. And the gag rule was passed in every subsequent session of Congress until 1845. Andrew Jackson, the president himself, and of course himself, a slaveholder, he urged Congress simply to ban anti-slavery literature from the mail altogether. Now, there was some irony in all this. Um, The severity of the reaction against abolitionism, it does sort of backfire because it only made the movement stronger. There were a lot of white Northerners who were not particularly sympathetic to enslaved people. They were not sympathetic to the cause of ending slavery. But they were appalled at the kind of mob violence that abolitionists encountered. Things like the gag rule, the murder of Elijah Lovejoy, the burning of abolitionist literature, all of those things suggested that when it came to anti-slavery, freedom of speech apparently did not mean anything. And this was a standard critique that abolitionists offered of slaveholders. They said, you watch. You come after these people. You criticize them. You try to take out their power. They will be ruthless. They will take you down with whatever means they need to. They'll do anything to keep slavery in place. And as time went on, more and more white Northerners start looking around and say, you know, on that point at least, abolitionists are on to something. But the rise of abolitionism doesn't just lead white Southerners to sort of crack down on anti-slavery sentiment. It does that, but it does more. Abolitionism also helps produce a larger rethinking within the South of what it meant to be the South. What is the place's regional identity? It leads white Southerners to start rethinking the South's position in the nation. Now, it was true that abolitionists only constituted a small minority of the northern population. But white Southerners lived in an era when the tide was clearly turning against slavery all over the Western world. Remember where we're at. Slavery was effectively a non-issue in the North. The French had abolished slavery in the 1790s. The British abolished slavery in the 1830s. There were a number of countries in South America, a number of colonies in the West Indies that also start instituting gradual emancipation plans. White Southerners begin to look around them, and they increasingly see themselves surrounded by enemies. And that was true even of some of their own countrymen, who in their eyes wanted to pervert the Constitution, twist it to their own advantage, and destroy the South. And so Southerners felt like they had to defend themselves. Just arguing that slavery was a necessary evil, that practically seemed like an apology. I wasn't going to cut it anymore. So starting in the 1830s, Southern intellectuals devote an enormous amount of energy to developing a new defense of slavery. And the way the new argument had it, slavery wasn't just something that was sort of constitutionally defensible. It's not just something that you could justify. In reality, the new argument argued that slavery made the South a better society than the North. Slavery, as the new argument went, was a good thing. John Calhoun put it most famously in 1837, slavery was a good, a positive good. Now, not everything about this defense was new. Here and there, white Southerners had sometimes extolled the supposed virtues of slavery before the 1830s, but never had such a systematic defense of slavery appeared on such a large scale consumed by so many people. And ironically, the same cheap printing technology that enabled abolitionists to spread their message also enabled pro-slavery Southerners to blanket the South with their own books, their own newspapers, and sermons, and pamphlets, and leaflets. What you had, effectively, was the emergence of a propaganda war and it lasts for more than 30 years. Now, the first major text in the pro-slavery argument, the new pro-slavery argument, was written by Thomas Dew. Here is Thomas Dew. There he is. Thomas Dew was a professor at the College of William and Mary in Virginia. And in 1832, he publishes a commentary on that slavery debate that they were having in the Virginia legislature and he comes out in complete opposition to the idea of abolition in the state instead he made the case for slavery's benefits and what he does basically is he lays the foundation for the pro-slavery argument that would develop and expand over the next three decades so From the purely practical perspective, Thomas Dew argued that slaveholders had millions of dollars invested in enslaved people, and the rights of private property had to be respected in America. But Dew went beyond the practical. He found historical grounding for slavery, philosophical grounding for slavery. He argued that the great ancient civilizations all thrived with slavery. He pointed to texts from ancient Greeks that talked about natural inequalities between people. He looked to the Bible. He argued that both the Old Testament and the New Testament sanctioned slavery as part of God's will. All told... Thomas Dew concluded that Africans were well-suited for slavery, that slavery made for a good society, and that the South was a legitimate heir to both classical tradition and Judeo-Christian tradition. And so many people built on these kinds of arguments that by the 1850s, you could just get them in big, fat reference books, you need an argument for slavery? Just pull one off the shelf, and you could find one. Now, it's, it's impossible and really not worth our time to try to capture all of the nuances of the pro slavery argument. But generally, authors focused on three major areas they focused on religion, they focused on history, and they focused on what we might call sociology. What made a good society? So when it came to religion, to start, as anti-slavery evangelicals, as they either got stifled or left the South, the ministers who remained play central roles in supporting slavery. After 1830, roughly half of all pro-slavery literature was written by ministers. And that made perfect sense. Christianity had become central to American society. If religious slaveholders did not believe that the Bible sanctioned slavery, they're going to have a pretty serious moral and psychological dilemma on their hands. So leading ministers from every major denomination came to interpretations of the Bible in a way that flatly contradict the interpretations of abolitionists. They point to patriarchs in the Old Testament, all of whom were slaveholders. They noted that the laws of ancient Israel protected slavery. Looking to the New Testament, they pointed out that Jesus had lived in a slave society, never criticized slavery. They noted how the Apostle Paul had urged a runaway slave to return to his owner. Southern clergy even found a scriptural origin for the enslavement of black people in particular. And here they looked to the book of Genesis. and what they argued that Africans were descendants of Noah's son Ham. And if you remember the story of Noah and the ark and what happens afterward, Noah had cursed the children of Ham, declaring them destined to be servants. This is what's sometimes referred to as the curse of Ham, sometimes referred to as the Hamitic myth. And the basic idea here is that the way that southern clergymen would have it, God had given white southerners a blessing. He had given them a biblically sanctioned people to be their slaves. Now, turning from religion to history, important literary figures and academics, journalists, politicians in the South, they all sort of expand and develop themes that Thomas Dew had touched on. They emphasize particularly how the philosophy and the art from ancient Greece and ancient Rome Civilizations that white Americans cherished as parts of their cultural heritage. All of these things, they pointed out, were the products of slave societies. And so they concluded that slavery was therefore not barbarism. Slavery was high culture. And once you could justify slavery that way, right? once you could justify it generally with history, And religion. Then you could turn to a sociological argument. You could defend slavery specifically as it appeared and worked in the South. And all things considered, pro slavery authors argued that compared to free society in the North, Southern slave society was better because they argued that it provided for a stronger social order one that was good for black people and white people alike. Now, explaining why slavery was good for black people was a nifty trick, but pro-slavery writers argued, they sort of come up with an argument that sort of fuses together ideas about white racial supremacy and Western cultural supremacy. Right, for pro-slavery writers, the inferiority of black people, that's a given. And they don't even feel the need to justify that. And they argued that because of that, slavery suited the needs of black people perfectly. The way the argument went, slaveholders provided enslaved people with their material needs. They protected them from the vagaries of freedom that they were not equipped to handle. And they brought them Christian civilization. Right? Black people supposedly came from savage ...primitive, backward African societies. And pro-slavery writers insisted... ...that slaves were not nearly as brutalized and abused... ...as abolitionists claimed. Just like abolitionists do. Pro-slavery authors drew on ideas about the loving family. They suggested that slaves were like children. Owners were like parents who nurtured them, made them better people. Not free people, not equal people. But pro-slavery writers insisted that Northerners who claimed that black people were capable of freedom were deluding themselves. They were the ones doing black people a disservice, even as they claimed to have their best interests in mind. But, of course, slavery was not all for the benefit of enslaved people. It benefited white people, whether they owned slaves or not. And here, too, the argument required a comparison with the North. In the North, the argument was that at the very bottom of the economic ladder were poor white industrial workers. They had the worst jobs. Most white people looked down their noses at them socially. But in the South, the argument was that slavery guaranteed white equality. It guaranteed democracy. Because the theory was that every white person, no matter how low, was still a step above the enslaved. In fact... Pro-slavery writers argued that even the slaves in the South were better off than poor people in the North. They argued, sure, industrial workers, they might be free. But considering how desperate their economic circumstances were, they might as well be slaves. Yes, factory owners paid wages, but that was it. Meager salary, that's all they got. But as workers got old, who keep them from starving? As they got sick, who's going to pay for medical care? What defenders of slavery are doing here is taking free labor ideology and flipping it completely upside down. They insisted that slavery serve black people and white people better than a free labor system. They argued that it made for more sincere and lasting bonds between people and society. And they argued that slavery made for a social order that was more humane, more Christian, more orderly, and more just than the supposedly greedy, selfish, industrial capitalism of the North ever could. Now, in reality, both pro-slavery and abolitionist writers exaggerated some in portraying slavery and the South. Slaveholders were not, every single one of them throughout the entire class, a rapist. But the slave South, it is not one big happy family, either. Both sides exaggerated the extent to which Northerners and Southerners had different values. Things like a rural lifestyle, things like Christianity, things like a domestic family ideal. These were things that were at the foundation of culture and society almost everywhere in the United States. And both Northerners and Southerners, of course, were immersed in an international capitalistic market economy, no matter how much Southerners like to pretend that they weren't as self-interested as Northerners were. But there was one thing, one absolutely crucial ideological viewpoint that Northerners and Southerners did not share. Only a small number of Northerners would have ever conceded that slavery was a better or even an equally good foundation for society as free labor. Both Northerners and Southerners shared values like independence and self-reliance. They both believed that hard work was a noble activity that could move you up the economic ladder But white Southerners see the existence of slavery as a guarantee of white equality. Slavery was the path to future economic gain. But white Northerners see white people doing the same jobs as slaves, and to them all that did was make white effort cheap. It actually held white people back in the class structure because it only enriched the people who owned the slaves. Now, only a minority of white Northerners cared enough about slavery to want to see it immediately abolished. If Southerners wanted to keep slavery, I was fine with most white Northerners. They don't really care much about black freedom. They don't care much about black rights. They don't care much about black equality. But a much larger number of Northerners could agree that they don't want to live in a slave society. They don't want to work in a slave society. And these differing perspectives on slavery, they had been getting wider and further apart since the Revolution. And they really start to diverge in the age of Jackson. The South becomes more and more dedicated to slavery even as the northern experience with slavery becomes part of the distant past, right? It sort of disappears from people's memory. But all these arguments, everything I've talked about today, the justice of slavery, distinctions between free and slave labor, the kinds of societies each free and slave produced, right? all these arguments are all abstract because everybody knew where slavery could go. The line between slave and free territories had been clear since the Missouri Compromise. But by the late 1840s, everything's up for grabs again. And this time, ideology and politics, they're not going to be so easy to sort out. And we'll pick up with that on Thursday. Thank you. Have a great day. You can watch Lectures in History every weekend on American History TV. We take you inside college classrooms to learn about topics ranging from the American Revolution to 9-11. That's Saturday at 8 p.m. at midnight.